Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Hockey News on the E! podcast presented by BetMGM. I'm Jacob Stoller from the Hockey News alongside Justin Cohn from the Fort Wayne Journal-Gazette. We have Kelly Cup to talk about Stanley Cup ties, uh, year in review. Pretty busy show, but until then, let's exchange pleasantries because we have to. Justin, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Pretty good. Thanks for asking, even though you kind of had to. Otherwise, it would have been rude. Um, doing well. You know, last night was... Uh, uh, a hockey observer's dream. We had the Stanley Cup being lifted. We had, you know, the, in the AHL, they had a an overtime winner as well. Lots, lots in both those series that had to do with ECHL, but particularly Vegas. You want to focus on and just kind of some of the names that are getting their names engraved on, on the cup and, and ties to the ECHL that we've seen so far. Yeah, it's a little bit weird for me because I'm in Fort Wayne. In the last four years, they were the Golden Knights uh, ECHL affiliate. So there was always this kind of feeling here that, you know, oh, eventually we're going to be a part of this Stanley Cup that never, never happened. Right. Um, So a little bit weird because after those four years, not a single guy that came through Fort Wayne is going to get his name on the cup. Uh, I thought, you know, during the season, if they were going to somehow get here, that maybe Braden Pahal would be a guy or Yuri Patera. Those were guys that recently came through Fort Wayne. But uh, I'm not sure what that says. Other than, you know, for, from the Fort Wayne perspective, they never really loved that affiliation. The Golden Knights were not using Fort Wayne appropriately. So I guess it does make some sense that none of those guys are going to get their names on the cup. But there are a lot of ECHL ties on people who are going to get their name on the cup through the Golden Knights, including Bruce Cassidy, uh, formerly coached in the ECHL, assistant coach Ryan Craig, uh, Lauren Brossard, Aiden Hill, Keegan Colasar, Jonathan Quick, and Logan Thompson, all of those guys at some point played in the ECHL and Aiden Hill and Logan Thompson. That was not very long ago. Uh, some other names just to throw out at you. Uh, manager of goaltender, goaltending development and scout Mike Rosati. Now that is a guy I did sit next to quite often when Fort Wayne was affiliated with them. Scouts Ken Holly, Vince Williams. European scout Alex Gadinyuk and some television guys, Dave Gaucher, Shane Knighty, play-by-play announcer on the radio, Dan Deuva, uh, all of these people, ECHL alums, who are now going to get their names on the uh, Stanley Cup. And of course, they are now affiliated with the Savannah Ghost Pirates. And that is uh, a really strong looking affiliation through the first year there. So I just wanted to give some acknowledgement to those ECHL people who are going to be on the Cup now. For sure. And I mean, it makes sense that you guys were expecting uh, maybe to see Fort Wayne alumni part of it, because as you mentioned, Savannah, their ECHL affiliate now has five contracted guys, uh, NHL contracted with Vegas on their roster. So obviously that's something that they have prioritized since they came to the league. And you can see it with Henderson as well in the AHL. So not far-fetched, but uh, yeah, no Fort Wayne ties in this one. But speaking well, of champ- and, and just to sorry, say, yeah. I mean, it, it is, it's just sort of a weird thing. Like when you, deal with these affiliations a lot like part of the selling point sometimes not just to the teams but also to the fans and even the media is you know oh look what you're going to be a part of and you know Fort Wayne aligned with Vegas when they came into the NHL basically and you know there was all that excitement early on and there was all this talk that Fort Wayne and Vegas were going to be aligned forever you know, that this was going to be a partnership that maybe maybe someday Vegas would buy the Comets. And you do see this all the time. And it's it's a little bit funny to me how quickly those things fizzle 
Like sometimes it's just a year, you know, like there's this mm-hmm. big sales job and then you just find out it's oil and water. Um, but, you know, I should say, just to clarify, they do have some good players who came through that Fort Wayne pipeline that are still in the system. Yuri Patera right now is probably the biggest one to me, but, mm-hmm. but it is interesting just how quickly those affiliations change. And we're about to get into that time of year where we'll probably see some movement and teams will start making those sales pitches. And then you see whether it pans out or not. In case you didn't catch it when Justin read it, but that means that every single goaltender that played for the Golden Knights this year has played in the ECHL at some point. Brassois, Hill, Patera, Thompson, Quick. Pretty impressive cast, I will say. But speaking of championships, uh, let's get to the one in the league that we're covering um, right now. So the Florida Everblades have won the Kelly Cup Finals, defeated the Idaho Steelheads in four games on Friday. That's the first sweep since 2017, but only five, fifth all-time uh, in the last 34 years. MVP was Cam Johnson, who had a 922 save percentage in 22 ECHL playoff games. Just as a whole here, you know, what are your thoughts, Justin, on a, a dominant series win from Florida over one of the best regular season t- teams we've seen in a long time? Well, I, you know, I think it, it tells you a few things. You know, the first is you can't put a ton of stock in the regular season, especially at this level and what it's going to mean in the playoffs. And I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about that, but you know, the biggest reason is the rosters change. Um, But you know, throughout the playoffs, people kept asking me yourself included, you know, what's Florida doing that has made them so successful in these playoffs. And I'll admit it's been a little bit difficult for me to put my finger on something in particular other than the goaltending, of course. And Mm -hmm. I just think that speaks to successful teams. They just bring their game up to another level in the playoffs. I mean, the one thing tangible that I thought was really clear was they were hitting, they were finishing their checks. They were doing an adequate job of doing that while staying out of the penalty box. But they just, you know, the details, you know, you're not getting caught defensively in transition odd man rushes you're getting traffic in front of the opposing net even if you're playing with a little bit of fire in the ECHL with goaltender interference so it's been difficult for me to put my finger on that one thing you know like we knew Idaho coming into the playoffs defense was their thing but Florida they just kind of did everything really well but I think what it speaks to is experience you know they had won it the season before they have an experienced coach and in Brad Ralph, and they just know how to up their game and do it in a postseason style so that you can be successful. So, you know, that's really my biggest takeaway is just experience matters in the playoffs, regardless of the level of hockey you're at. You mentioned regular season not mattering. I'm just, this, this came up to me on the spot. I wonder what the correlation would be between the teams that have higher winning percentage after the roster, roster cutoff, so after they get their additions um, until the end of the regular season, compared to, sorry, correlates with, you know, teams that perform well in the playoffs. I wonder if that has somewhat of a correlation. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think we're saying the same thing. I mean, to me... No, I'm just saying scientifically, I wonder if, like, if we actually looked, if, like, the teams that are doing the best in that little stretch end up you know, winning or going on sizable runs? Well, I think it'd be, I think yes is the answer to your question, but I also think it'd be really (laughs) insightful to see like what metrics we could figure out once all the AHL guys come down. Uh, Ah, yeah. So like, let's, let's use Toledo as an example. They got stacked at the end of the ECHL and AHL regular seasons by all these Grand Rapids guys, you know, so it's not, it's not so much... 
quantifying what you're saying basically whenever each respective team got their extra bit of punch right whenever they got their reinforcements how they did right to me it's not the trade deadline or the even the roster deadline it's when when, it's it's just it's the playoff roster like when you get those guys down but i do think we're sort of saying the same thing which is same, same, it, but different. But no, we are the saying first, the same thing. It's not the first seventy-five percent of the regular season. It's the mm-hmm. last twenty-five percent and forward that you can sort of judge a team. So Fort Wayne, another example. I mean, they were middle of the road, you know, really inconsistent, but they did get it together at the very end of the regular season, and therefore they looked like a totally different team in that first round. So for sure, like I mean. Listen, the NHL, the Panthers made it to the finals. They were an eight seed. I think that we're seeing that across hockey as a whole, just kind of it's about getting hot at the right time and, and having all your pieces intact. Um, one person that was big for the Florida Everblades was Oliver Chow. Uh, we've talked about him a little bit throughout the, the show this season. 25-year-old forward. This is his first full pro year. He signed out of college with Tucson last year, played six games with Charlotte in the AHL this year as well. He had 17 points in 19 playoff games, 37 points in 42 regular season games. Justin, just to start out, what did Chow do so well to make him an impact player in these playoffs? Well, I mean, a, a word I use a lot is opportunistic. And word of the day, you know, every day, yeah. every day. <laughs> and it's it's amplified in the postseason. You know, you want guys who are going to step up in the moments that it matters most and very clearly, you you can look at almost any team and you can say, oh, this is a guy who's built for the playoffs, built for those moments. And then there's other people who disappear. Even if they were great in the regular season, they just can't quite get it done in the playoffs. And so I look at Oliver Chow and he was a guy that certainly stood out at certain points. And I think if you go back through our broadcast, you know, there were a couple times late in the season where, you know, I, I dangled his name a little bit. You know, 13 goals, 37 points in 42 regular season games. That's great. But during the playoffs, it was like, whoa, where did this guy come from? And, you know, seven goals in 19 playoff games. So, you know, that tells me, hey, he knows how to rise to the occasion. He did it in college. He did it at UMass Amherst. He definitely did it at Quinnipiac. Uh, You know, he's a guy that's certainly on the AHL radar. But, you know, we've talked about it before. Every year there are... There's at least one guy, but probably two or three guys from a championship team who, because they're getting scouted in the finals and they make such an impression, you just know they're going to land themselves in the AHL deal. I feel like Oliver Chow is going to be one of those guys. Uh, So really just opportunistic, does a lot of things really well. Not big. You know, we've talked about that too. Five foot nine, 175 pounds. He's not going to blow you away with his physicality, but he will with his speed. He will with his positioning and just a, a player who's put himself on the radar in a really big way with what he's done during these uh, these playoffs. And, and you know, a couple of other things, you know, just with the Everblades while we're talking about them. Wait, can I ask you one question yeah. about Chow? Is he a PTO guy with Charlotte or? I believe so, him? yes. So no, he I was remember. with Florida, like signed from the start of the year, right? On the Correct. Deal? I'm just, I'm just double checking here. Yes. He is not on their list of, of AHL or NHL contracted guys. So yeah, he was a PTO guy this year. I see. Sorry. What you were saying about, uh, you had a couple of um, notes on yeah, Florida. Just, just a couple of notes on Florida. Um, you know, Kyle Newber, there's a player 
who, if you follow the ECHL, you would never think that he would necessarily put himself into elite company, but he has now got his name on three Kelly Cups. Uh, He won with Allen in 2016, and of course he won with Florida last year. Um, Names of the guys who were with both of these back-to-back Florida Everblades championship teams, because it's not easy to replicate putting together the same roster on back-to-back years because of just the way the system works. A a great example of this would be a guy named Alex Aliardi. He played with Florida last year. Mm -hmm. Significant player. But because you can only hand, hang on to so many guys, he was, you know, he's now out in the Western Conference. So here are the guys who were members of both back-to-back years. Of course, Cam Johnson, uh, Lucas Cable, Levko Koper, Stefan LeBlanc, Ben Masella, the captain, John McCarron, a guy who had a veteran with so many big goals, Newber, Joe Pendenza, who looked great during that series, and Blake Winicky. So all of those guys win back-to-back titles. We should give a little bit more love to Brad Ralph, eighth coach in ECHL history to win multiple championships. So that puts you in company of guys like John Brophy. Um, So I don't think there's any question that Brad Ralph is probably the best coach of the league right now. He is now the all-time leader in career postseason games coach. So he's coached the most uh, Kelly Cup playoff games at 130, and he has won 79 of them. Florida, which had only the 11th best record during the regular season, they were pretty much the last team to do something like this. When they won in 2012, um, they were not in the top five teams going into the playoffs uh, also. So when it comes to underdog champions, if you will, the last two, probably the last two big ones were probably the Everblades. And one last thing I want to say about them, they had some huge crowds, including um, the largest crowd they had ever had in game four. That was 7,855 fans, which may not seem like a huge thing because, hey, you know, they won the cup, but they've been playing hockey there for a long time. They've had a lot of big games and, you know, they don't get a ton of media coverage there in Southwest Florida. So for them to pack it in, in a a potential sweep as they did. I thought that was uh, worth mentioning, of course, too. But with the Kelly Cup ending, that concludes uh, the 2022-23 season. We kind of touched on some takeaways beginning just on how regular season um, success isn't necessarily a prerequisite to playoff success, and it's more specific than that. But what are some other things that kind of caught your eyes, Justin? Maybe let's start with, you know, goalies and how they kind of ran the table this year in the ECHL. Yeah, and, and and just to to throw one more thing at that regular season record, I mean that Idaho, and I don't want to portray it like they, you know, <laughs> yeah, they, look, they still made the finals. Okay, the best regular season in ECHL history, and they made the finals. So mm-hmm. it's not like they came out and just, you know, coughed it up in the first rounds. It's still a really good run that that you know deserves some acknowledgement. So I don't want to portray it that way. But, you know, there, there were some other teams that I think you could sort of make that point with. Toledo, you know, they were the hottest team in the ECHL coming into the postseason. What they had done from January to April was incredible. You know, they get knocked out in the Western Conference Finals. The other team that was also really hot was Cincinnati. They're knocked out by Toledo. Fort Wayne, um, you know, they make the playoffs. They are two years removed from a, a championship by most metrics for most teams, they 
had a great year. They lose in the first round. They fire their coach. So the overriding point there is the regular season is meaningful to a point, but it is not necessarily the the the, the great gauge that we would like it to be of how you're going to do in the postseason. But to get back to your point, sorry for my tangent there about goaltending. Um, you know, look, we I remember our first show. We sort of warned people we're going to talk about goaltenders a lot on the show because when it comes to the NHL prospects, there are so many more goaltenders than any other position. Like every ECHL team about had a legitimate goaltender who was on an AHL or NHL prospect. So that's where the prospects are. But I do feel like in some respects, it was almost on overload this year, Uh, especially in the playoffs. Cam Johnson, what he did was incredible. We'll continue to talk about him, not just today, but, uh, you know, during the summer. Adam Scheel of Idaho, you know, you know, I, I like him a lot. He has done some great things. He was uh, on fire during the regular season. He was 28, 8, and 0 oh, um, with a 197 and a 932 save percentage. But look at some of these other names that we we talked about this year, were great in the regular season, and also stepped up in the postseason. Clay Stevenson of South Carolina, by the way, a rookie. Luke Cavillan, Newfoundland, by the way, a rookie. Sebastian Cosa, Toledo Walleye, future Detroit Red Wings goaltender, by the way, a rookie. Tyler Wall of South Carolina, by the way, a rookie. rookie. All of those guys I just named, those were the top five in terms of goals against average and also amongst the best in save percentage. So you can keep going through a bunch of names. All of these guys are legitimate prospects. Michael DiPietro, Hunter Vorva, Pat Nagel, Parker Gehagen, Mark Sinclair, uh, Beck Warm. So the takeaway is ECHL goaltending, in my opinion, is always good. But this year it was ridiculously good. And a lot of these guys I just named, they may be back in this league at some extent next year, but these are all names that you should remember because I think they all have a shot. Maybe Nagel might be the outlier because he's a little bit older, but these are all guys who could move up. And so if you're the ECHL right now and you like to talk about prospects, I'd be pumping my chest right now about goaltending above all else. There's also this year we learned there's a new king uh, in terms of the toughest division the league, isn't there? Yeah, you know, it's funny. Uh, as soon as Florida – Capture the cup. <laughs> I got a text from a broadcaster that basically said, I think it's been cinched now that the South is right. the best division. So, you know, for a little background, I, I think most people would probably agree that for the last several years, the Central has been the toughest division. And that's, you know, that gives you your Toledo's, your Fort Wayne's, your Cincinnati, and then, you know, some of the more outliers, Indy, Kalamazoo, Wheeling, Iowa. But this year, I mean, I feel like we did see a changing of the guard. The South Division, South Carolina won that division. That's who I had picked to win the Cup. Obviously, they get bounced in the first round by Florida. But if your eventual champion is the fourth-place team, I think that speaks highly for your division. But Jacksonville, Greenville, Florida, Atlanta, I tell you, even Orlando that was in sixth place, that was a solid team. They were a 479 winning percentage, so they were still in the hunt. But, you know, to take it a little bit further, you know, Idaho, and this was my concern about Idaho coming into the playoffs and why I had actually not picked them to even reach the finals, was I felt that their schedule was not 
all that tough. You know, they were in the weakest division, which was the mountain division. Uh, so the point here is all of the divisions were pretty strong. I mean, there was really no division where you're like, ugh, because, you know, even the mountain was still pr- producing Idaho and uh, Allen. But the South, from top to bottom, now the toughest division. Is there any negative, you think, to so many good teams being in one division? Or is that just a pessimist in me wondering that? No, I think that's a legitimate question. The negative to me can be the scheduling. You know, like I just said. With, the reason with I that. said it may not be reasonable is because I would think the negative would be almost like the inverse. Like a team like Florida not getting a chance to go further, but then they did anyway. So it kind of contradicts my point. Well, I mean, look, we could we could go deep into the weeds here and discuss the the playoff, you know, the playoff format, like who qualifies, because you could certainly argue that, well, if you're going to have a one team that's really uh, strong, like the South, that maybe we should have a wild card system, because you could argue that, you know, maybe the fifth place team in the South should be in there over the fourth place team from the mountain division. Now, I, I've been in a lot of leagues, a lot of different formats. I like the way they do it here because it's an unbalanced schedule. So, you know, they let them work it out within the divisions. But I think that's the argument there against, you know, if there is an imbalance of power in the divisions is do we need to look then at who's qualifying for the playoffs? But it's not a problem because there's so much turnover. You know, right now we're saying, hey, the South, that's the toughest division. It could be totally changed when we reconvene for training camps in October. I mean, it, because you just don't know who's going to be able to be kept. I mean, a team like Florida, when you win a championship, one of the first things that happens is all these teams from overseas, they start throwing tons of money at all your guys. So, you know, it's very hard to replicate success at this level, which makes what Florida did even, even that much more impressive. But uh, I don't think there's much of a problem in terms of the imbalance because, you know, I don't look at any team that made the playoffs and say, whoa, they shouldn't have been here. If you would have asked me coming into the playoffs, who is the least deserving team of being here, I would have said Utah. And what did Utah do? They won the first two games against Idaho and looked really impressive. And part Mm -hmm. of the reason they did that was because, to what we were talking about earlier, all of these guys who arrived from the AHL, they looked like a much better team. They suddenly had Trent Minor in goal. They Totally different team. So, you know, it's so hard to predict these things, but – I think overall we're pretty balanced, but the South is at the top of the list to me right now. Lots changes year to year in the ECHL, um, but also recently there's been changes. You know, it's more of a developmental league over the last half decade to a decade. And with that, you have to wonder, is as we are in this reflective tone and looking back at the season, um, does the league want, quote-unquote, goonery, as you coined it, uh, in our <laughs> prep show notes? Um, you know, there, there are... Players that aren't suspended as harshly as maybe we would have thought. Um, fighting isn't necessarily being weeded out in terms of the rules, like you're seeing in the junior leagues. What's your kind of take on this past year, what we saw with regards to that? I think the ECHL sometimes doesn't know what it wants. Look, they, they'll never, they're never going to explicitly tell you, but they love fighting. You know, they, they love well, it. Well, it's when, a draw. It's a draw for, for a lot of the markets too, obviously. Absolutely. And, you know, look – I'm a big believer that, you know, anything that keeps your name in the news is generally a good thing. So even if there's some bench clearing line brawl, uh, fight during warmups, things that we have definitely seen over the last couple of years, you know, I do think overall that bodes kind of well for the league, but they do send mixed messages. You know, 
we talked about it a few episodes. I mean, we're what about four years into them capping the number of fights that a player can have before he gets suspended at 10. And because of that rule, you have seen fighting go down a little bit. Uh, you know, that first year there were guys that were toying with that mark this year. I think there was only two, I would have to look that up. So, you know, that's a little bit weird to me to even have that rule at the double a level, they're going to tell you it's about safety. They're going to tell you about some of these things. But then last year, what do they do? They add a roster spot, which ostensibly is to make it easier for everybody in the wake of call-ups. But a, a, a tangent of that is it made it a little bit easier for you to carry a goon if you wanted it. So they do send mixed messages. But I think what they need to do is encourage the fighting you know, as much as you can within reason because the fans, especially at this level, like it. That's what gets you viral social media videos. That's what gets butts in the seat. But they need to get rid of some of the antics. We've talked about Mikhail Robodeau many times. He has been suspended. He, he's allowed to come back. He gets suspended. He's allowed to come back again. There are other guys around there. Garrett Klotz is a name that comes to so, mind. But what do you mean by antics? Like uh, that guy you're saying? Well, or I the think coming back is an antic. You're saying no, like the, the antics are being the guys who are hitting fans with their sticks or throwing things uh, into the yeah, crowd. You can't do that. Chasing guys down the tunnel, you know, things like that. <laughs> they can weed them out. And it's not right. hard to find these guys. All you have to do is go to the ECHL site, Google suspensions, and see what they were suspended for. And some of these guys, and I'm sorry, Robodeau's the best example because every ECHL everyday fan knows his name because he keeps doing crazy things like that, trying to injure guys. That's probably the first thing I should have led with. Guys with brutal blindside hit checks from behind. Those are the things we need to weed out, but not weed out the fighting. So if you're a prospect, if you're Toledo, and you've got two goaltending prospects, Sebastian Costa and John Leatherman, and you're playing against a team like Allen who has a history of guys who take runs at players. That's the situation that you need to weed out. You want Toledo to feel totally comfortable having their prospects here. And if something happens, you want it adjudicated properly. And the ECHL, they try really hard. We love Joe Ertz. But that's the thing that they just have to fine-tune a little bit so that there is a little bit more safety while giving the fans the things that they want. Well said, well said. Um, so let's maybe, there's some other topics that we mentioned that I think if we touch on them, it'll open another can of worms. Um, but do you want to touch on officiating just a bit? Well, just, you know, I just, you know, we're talking about it a little bit, but. Um, All right, let's look know, at it from a community, from a lens. I think you want to touch on it from a communication angle, right? Right. Well, I just want to mention goaltender interference because it was, it was. Well, Absolutely. Goaltender interference and just officiating at a whole. We've talked about so much this season. So, again, I, I want to be on the league side. I think the big thing they need to do is improve the uh, communication so that everybody understands, especially when it comes to goaltender interference, what constitutes it? What is going to get a goal taken away? What is going to let a goal stand? It uh, impacted too many games throughout the regular season. It impacted yeah. at least two huge playoff games. Of course, Fort Wayne, Cincinnati being the biggest one. It might have decided a series, potentially. Did it cost so, Ben Boudreaux his job? Uh, you could make the arguments. I I'm guess. just saying if we're getting really crazy. Yeah. I mean, so I just, I want, and when you talk to people that players, coaches, that's what they tell you. Like, we don't know what the standard is anymore. 
So let's figure that out. Let's get the equipment in there to get as many games right as possible. And I don't care. You know, I feel this way. I don't care about consistency from building to building. I, I don't. I think if you are in one building one night and you have the ability to get a call right, let's do it. If that means you pull up the HD feed from Toledo that they, you know, that they blast on local TV, let's do it. So let's get mm -hmm. all that. And then the biggest other thing is communication. When you talk to, you know, look, there are some coaches who do not get along with certain officials. Some of those officials were working the Kelly cup finals. Like that's crazy to me. So, you know, there's one guy who basically he was not allowed to work in a certain uh, city this year because there were so many incidents, but that same guy is working in the Kelly cup Finals. So the league perceives him as being one of their best. That's fine, but let's make it so that there, we don't have these, uh, caustic situations between teams and refs and some of the ways we've talked about before, but that's improving communication. That's finding out what the players and the coaches are thinking about referees. Is this referee doing a good job of explaining to me what's going on during the games? Let's just yeah. fine tune that stuff. So everybody gets along a little bit better. Aside from um, internally though, how do you think they can improve it externally in terms of maybe communicating to fans or just the general public when these things happen? Well, I, I look at this is going to be a simple situation, but we, we mentioned, hey, you know, the ECHL, I'm sorry, the NHL, they do these the player safety videos so that people understand this is why this hit was not allowed. I would love to see at this level them educate fans a little bit more about penalties, about goals. I mean, mm. I, I don't understand why they can't post some stuff and say this is why this determination was made. Uh, let's just educate the fans a little bit more. Instead, sometimes at this level, it can be difficult to find out simple answers to things. You know, I mean, look, I, I know Joe Ernst, so I could get these answers. But if you're a fan in, you know, let's say Norfolk, that's not getting a ton of media coverage and you're witnessing something going on and you just you leave and you don't have any clue what happened. Why? Why did the team just lose this game? You know, why was that guy in the Pelly box? So let's take some steps to educate people a little bit more. Uh, the easiest, most tangible way to do that is those those videos that we see other leagues do and even other sports. So that's the off the top of my my head idea. Hey, I mean, I, I'm all for that. Um, so do we want to get to uh, well, players or coaches first? Uh, you know, let's just roll through them a little bit. You know, cool. Let's to, go yeah. through. We want to talk about some of the players um, of the year. Just, you know, basically, in other words. We're going to list off all the, the most popular characters we've mentioned so far and just go over it again. Um, our, our friends of the show, or acquaintances, depending if they came on or not. We talked about Cam Johnson, uh, Owen Hedrick, a favorite of Justin's all season long. Yeah, I mean, the, the idea here is I wanted to, you know, we, we went through like an award show before the playoffs. But now you can look at things through the lens of the playoffs sure. as well. And so a couple of these guys, you know, I think looked even better. So, you know, Cam Johnson, we mentioned Owen Hedrick. He was the best defenseman in the league this year. Young guy. I mean, rookie, the, 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 the upside is incredible as a guy who can run your power play, who's going to be defensively responsible, who's going to just kind of do it all. So, you know, if, if you – my takeaway was, wow, you know, he might have been my player of the year in a lot of respects when I think about how often I talk about him on the show and whatnot. So definitely deserves mention. Brandon Hawkins in Toledo – We've known for a few years that he's one of the best offensive players in the league, but I feel like he almost took it to another level this year. Now, 
Some people would say he's a little one-dimensional and it's all about the shot. I would argue very much against that. I've seen him get physical with guys. I've seen him make some, do some great passing. But he's the single biggest factor, like if you talk about one player that you have to account for, I can't think of another player in the league who is can take over a game as much as Brandon Hawkins. Pavel Gogolev, he's one of these guys that I think took it you know, really changed the narrative about him in the playoffs for me. Like I didn't realize just how good he was until I really watched him during the playoffs for Newfoundland. So, you know, he does some incredible things, the playmaking, the stick handling, the awareness of where the goal is, where the opponents are back to the net, things like that. Really impressive. Hank Crone. We talked about him a lot. You know, if you are able on that Allen team, which had so many playmakers, to still set yourself apart, uh, I think that speaks volumes about what your upside is. You know, he is, um, you know, still a really young guy. Sorry, just bringing up his his stats here. Um, you know, still a really five points in sixty nine games. One hundred five points, right? Forty nine goals in sixty nine games as a rookie. Now, again not playing in the toughest division, but did play against some really sound defensive teams. So I think he certainly deserves some accolades beyond what he's already gotten. Yeah. One quick question. Hank Crone, if you had to kind of handicap it, do you see him going up to the AHL or getting some big money in the ECHL? Cause a lot, cause I think historically his profile could fit someone that a European team could target hard. I would tend to agree with you on that. I mean, I think if he wants it, there has to be some AHL team. Oh, I'm sure you had a cup of coffee somewhere. I'm sure. No, no, for sure. But I think that he could get a very enticing opportunity overseas. Absolutely. And I mean, look, Allen was one of those outliers that only had a couple uh, AHL, ECH, or AHL, NHL guys going to the playoffs. They only had Zachary Massacott and Kevin Mandalay. So, um, you know, yeah, he's you're you're 100 right. He's one of those guys that they say, look, he's not under contract with anybody. Let's throw a ton of money at him and let's get him over to Great Britain and see what he does in the elite <laughs> league. So exactly. uh, I could 100 percent see that happening. Uh, just two more guys I want to throw at you uh, sort of uh, in, in the mold, maybe of Pavel Gogolev is Fort Wayne's Ty Feliber. This was a guy that I think most people said, OK, really nice fringe AHL, ECHL player. But he went bananas in the second half of that season, got called up to Milwaukee, looked really good. The only reason he got sent back down was because Nashville was out of the playoffs and they they loaded up the Milwaukee Admirals. But what Feliber was doing with Fort Wayne during that first-round playoff series was crazy. I mean, he was a one-man machine. This is not a big guy. He was beaten up. He can do all sorts of things. Great playmaker incredible speed. He'll get a little bit feisty out there. He'll run his mouth. So this is a guy whose stock I see has gone way up. And to the point you just made, I know he's getting thrown tons of money from Europe. I also would expect him to be back in the AHL though, because of what he did. So he's a guy that I think really changed his narrative during the postseason, And also was Beck warm of Cincinnati doing the same thing. He did not start game one for Cincinnati. They went with Mark Sinclair. But Beck Warm, I mean, he was, uh, you know, a, a shutout machine. I mean, to have the the shutout in Game Seven against Fort Wayne, I think he looks like a much better prospect for the next level than even I thought he was during the regular season. Then coaches, we touched on Brad Ralph, but other, you know, impressive names as well. Let's start with Everett Sheen of Idaho. 
Yeah, I mean, you have to give him all the accolades for what they did during the regular season. And as I thought, I said, it doesn't matter, Justin. Look at this well, guy. but flopping. But uh, as I said, for also getting them to the finals, uh, he did a really nice job against Utah Fair. after dropping those first two games. I think a lot of people, myself included, I thought Toledo was going to beat them in the Western Conference Finals. They were, I'm not going to say dominant, but they were clearly the better team in that series. So he deserves everything coming his way. Brendan Kotick in South Carolina did a wonderful job during the regular season to win the, what we said, the toughest division. Still a very young coach. I could see him moving up very swiftly. Chad Costello and Allen. If you go back to our first episodes, I was very concerned about these first-year coaches, these guys jumping directly from playing for their teams to coaching them. I was wrong. Chad Costello did a really nice job, second place in that Mountain Division with the Allen Americans. And look, I mean, guys like Hank Crone, he was getting the best out of these guys. He deserves a lot of credit. Another guy like him in his vein was Pete MacArthur of Adirondack, a first-year coach. He snuck them into the playoffs uh, that last weekend. Um, really impressed with what he did with what I thought was kind of a not. Uh, they were a little limited in talent, in my opinion, and he got the most out of that team. But the other guy I want to mention is Duncan Dalmo in Indy. Look, the the finally the Indy Fuel I think ascended to another level with their play because they have really been a, a just a, not a factor for so many years. Uh, they got third place in, in the Central Division. They ran into Toledo. They got swept. But I just feel like Indy suddenly is a very good team, a very good factor, and he deserves a lot of the credit there. Absolutely. Um, well, I think for today's show, we'll cap it there. Thanks to everyone for listening. To This isn't the last episode. Um, there may be a break and whatnot, and we'll have to figure that out. But just a thanks to everyone for, for listening, to our guests for coming on. It was really awesome to to give – I think a perspective on a league that, you know, doesn't get enough coverage and we were able to kind of peel back the curtain, talk to some players, some coaches, hear some interesting stories. So that was fun. Um, Justin, any closing remarks from you before we, we sign off? Yeah, I just I don't think we're going to have a break or maybe we will eventually, but we're trying to set something up for next week. So let, let's stay tuned on that. But yeah, I just I felt it was important to recap a lot of the things that we talked about. And if you go to my Twitter, one of the things that I put up there was all the different players oh, yeah. that, that we have made prospects of the week. And I, I was looking at that list. And I was cool. I was name, really, cool list of names. It was cool list because I felt like these were not the household names. We weren't just going like Sean Sidlowski and, you know, guys like that. It was a lot of new guys working their ways up through organizations. Some of them don't have AHL or NHL contracts yet, but we think they're going to get there. We were it's funny because the prospect of the week, sorry to interrupt you, Justin, but the prospect of the week was one of the things we kind of were struggling with when we started workshopping this because, you know, the traditional criteria that the other shows um, use, maybe either by age or just uh, pedigree, doesn't really apply for the ECHL. So we kind of were wrestling with it. But I think, you know, that list you showed is a testament to the fact that we figured it out because those and those names were some of the better players in the league and probably, I would bet, the guys that will get promotions this offseason. Yeah, and we were ahead of the curve with some of these guys too. You know, some of these guys ended up being beasts. And I remember, you know, sort of discussing them and being like, oh, I hope he's as good as I think he is. So, so, but yeah, it wasn't all goaltenders. We represented a lot of different teams and I'm really excited about that. So that's on my Twitter if you want to check it out. But there's definitely going to be a lot more to come this summer. Sure thing. Uh, Justin alluded to it, so I will do the reverse drinks as well. We do have something cool planned next week. Um, stay tuned for that. 
But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone, for listening this season, and we'll see you next week.